Hello, folks. We're down the line from Cape Cod once again tonight with political analyst, author and historian Dr. James D. Boyce. I'm Michael L. Roberts. This is the Election Eve special of the American Chronicle. We do warmly welcome you to this, the 22nd episode of the American Chronicle, on a night that needs little by way of introduction. It is either the beginning of the end for the incumbent President Donald Trump, or, to put it mildly, the beginning of a period of profound self-examination on the part of the Democrats. As I used to during the halcyon days of lockdown one then, I began tonight's episode by asking James for the feeling on the ground stateside. So with uh, just over 24 hours to go now until Americans go to the polls, what you've started to see is the two candidates focusing very much upon those key states which they believe are going to be essential uh, to delivering the White House for them. Uh, And that appears to have come down uh, to Pennsylvania. Uh, Mm. Both the president and Joe Biden have been spending an inordinate amount of time in that key Uh, Commonwealth uh, here in the United States, desperate to try to claw its electoral college votes. Um, It was a state which, of course, uh, went uh, narrowly for Donald Trump some four years ago. Uh, It's exactly the kind of state which many Democrats believe uh, should be a key uh, winnable state uh, for Joe Biden, uh, believing, of course, that Biden, more than Hillary Clinton, uh, would appeal to white working class male uh, voters. Uh, And it's exactly that kind of a demographic Uh, which Biden is desperate to try to claw back from Donald Trump, not only in Pennsylvania, of course, but in other key swing states across the nation. And it's uh, over the last couple of days, you have really seen the two men trying to uh, crisscross those uh, states in a desperate attempt to to sell their final message to the American electorate uh, before they hit the polls uh, come Tuesday. But of course, um, so many million Americans have already voted. It really is now, quite frankly, a desperate attempt Uh, to get those uh, uh, individuals who have yet to go to the polls uh, to vote, uh, uh, if indeed uh, such a rare beast exists. (laughs) I I note your words this week uh, that there are many parallels between this stage of this electoral process and uh, the same for uh, four years ago, uh, 2016, with Hillary, of course. Uh, I note that uh, Biden appeared to stop campaigning at some point in this week, somewhat earlier than Donald Trump. Is that as a result of feeling that those uh, uh, early votes coming in were, were a surefire sign of success or otherwise? Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, I, uh, you know, I mean, you and I, you know, shared uh, an experience uh, together of uh, election 2016 uh, for all that that brought to, uh, to the world. Hmm. And uh, I, I'm seeing many, many similar signs, quite frankly, heading into this election. You know, there's similar forecasts across the networks of an apparent democratic invincibility. Uh, similar signs were said, of course, in 2016. Uh, we've seen people suggesting that Joe Biden has a 91% chance of winning the presidency. We saw the same signs, uh, the same figures for Hillary Clinton up to uh, and including election day four years ago. Uh, we're seeing <coughs> signs of uh, uh, hemorrhaging 
uh, by key individuals away from uh, the Republican candidate. We saw that four years ago. Um, even Saturday Night Live uh, last uh, this weekend uh, opened uh, with uh, with the Joe Biden character mm. played by Jim Carrey uh, talking very much about. Uh, I, I believe he was saying basically that, uh, that basically mocking the fact that there's an, a similar overconfidence uh, in the Biden camp as there was in Hillary Clinton uh, with the with Hillary Clinton's character by by, by Kate McKinnon coming in and almost like warning him uh, of the uh, the danger of hubris. Uh, of course, uh, mm, she had mm. played Hillary Clinton uh, to, with a great aplomb some four years ago. So uh, if you look at uh, the key battleground states where it is that Joe Biden is looking to win the presidency, um, you would think he'd be trying to lock these down uh, with greater uh, passion, quite frankly, than he has been doing. Yes, he's been campaigning, basically chasing uh, the president all the way around Pennsylvania. Uh, mm. We saw reports uh, coming in this week uh, that he has been trying to head off into other states as well in an attempt to sort of head uh, try to, to win even more um, of the electoral college vote than perhaps you might need. And again, this reminding me, unfortunately, of what Hillary did uh, some four years ago when uh, she headed off to, uh, to uh, Arizona uh, to try to, again, chip away into what would procedurally be a, a, a red state uh, rather than trying to lock the door on those, uh, those mm. all important blue states, uh, which of course she ended up losing uh, narrowly in uh, in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, um, and and I, the, the the fear clearly is that that uh, that Biden's going to you know lose this in a squeaker again. Um, he wasn't out campaigning last Sunday afternoon. Uh, his campaign schedule compared to the president's has been lighter. Uh, let's not suggest that Biden isn't campaigning, but mm. one of the great problems is um, you and I have talked about the optics of American politics. We discussed it quite a lot uh, when we talked about the debates a few weeks ago. Well, the optics continue to play a role in American politics in the last week of this campaign. And of course, um, you know, you can rightly criticize Donald Trump for holding these mega rallies um, as he has done around the country, but they make for great imagery. Uh, and they certainly contrast starkly uh, with those held by Joe Biden, who of course has been uh, engaging social distancing uh, speaking what it looks like to an empty car park. And the problem is that that looks awful on television. And when you contrast it with what Donald Trump's doing, the appearance, even if not necessarily the reality, is that Donald Trump is out there uh, speaking to thousands and thousands of, of supporters, whilst Joe Biden is speaking to an empty car park. And mm. when you see that on television, it does make uh, for rather stark imagery. Um, again, uh, at this point, no one can really be sure who has already voted uh, mm. and how these images will play out uh, with those who have yet to vote. Uh, but very, very clearly, there is a very different approach to the final week of campaigning uh, by the Biden and Trump campaign, uh, as we've seen parried on, quite frankly, throughout uh, the campaign today. Mm. We've discussed, obviously, the nature of polls and the manner in which they uh, influence the electorate rather than reflect it. Um, and of course, we can't be sure uh, the extent to which uh, either campaign is going to be victorious or otherwise in this situation. One thing I've been uh, picking up on this week is that notion is the notion that in terms of the disparity between the polls, bias aside, the uh, there's this element where certain states you're able to state your state your preference, state that you're a Republican voter or a Democrat mm -hmm. voter in certain uh, key states. And many of those who 
in, who see the polls going in Donald Trump's way rather than Joe Biden's way are accounting for those where where otherwise would be shy Trump voters are, are, are the numbers of said Trump voters are being exposed. Your thoughts on that, please? Yeah, it's it's very it's very difficult. You know, I mean, four years ago, everybody, most people looked at the polls and figured, okay, this is clearly going to go one way, uh, and it's going to result in a Trump disaster, quite frankly. And uh, yeah, that wasn't just um, you know people like me and other political analysts; it was Republicans as well. I think who, until mm-hmm. you know the the late hours of election night, quite frankly, still expected uh, Hillary Clinton to win the presidency. Mm. Um, it's, it's notable that, you know, the amount of people who come out of the woodwork afterwards who uh, seem to be very, very wise after the effect, but had uh, no great, uh, uh, you know, sense of, uh, of, of Donald Trump's victory beforehand. Um, what you are seeing, I think, as a result of that is, is a hesitancy with regards to these polls. Yes, a lot of the polls seem to be suggesting that Joe Biden is going to win, but I think there is a a, a, a great fear factor, quite frankly, on the left over here, uh, that we could face uh, a very similar situation as we did four years ago. Um, you know, some elections are eminently winnable by parties who somehow managed to snatch a defeat from the jaws of victory. And uh, I think 2012 arguably was one for the Republicans. I think Mitt Romney had a very strong shot at winning that election. Mm. Uh, I think John Kerry in 2004, likewise, uh, could have prevailed against George W. Bush. Uh, and this could very, very well be one of those elections. Um, at this point, it could still go either way. I know that there's a lot of a lot of polling, and a lot of reporting that would seem to suggest that Joe Biden House is in the bag. Well, again, see 2016, quite frankly. Um, there is a phenomenal amount of early voting going on. Um, by some reckoning, at least 70 million votes may have already been cast. We're already approaching the figure that was cast in its entirety some four years ago. So uh, we are likely to see a, a huge spike uh, in turnout, which is something I think we should all uh, be encouraged about because certainly mm. four years ago, despite the, uh, the personalities involved and the stakes involved, uh, turnout hit a 20 year low. Mm. And it was that low turnout, which was um, certainly in my opinion, and I think the opinion of many people, responsible for Donald Trump's victory and more importantly Hillary Clinton's defeat. Um, The Democrats clearly believe that when turnout rises uh, so do their chances of victory and um, certainly when you see I think uh, the states at play here and how every state has slightly different regulations with regard to voting, voting regulation, uh, when votes can be counted, uh, when uh, even when mail-in ballots can still be accepted by um, it, it would not be surprising, frankly, that has a knock-on effect into election night uh, for those of us who are going to plan to stay up to uh, consider the, uh, the results as they come in. Um, that could leave, um, I think, uh, a sense of uh, uh, disappointment at the end of the evening if indeed there is not a result. Mm. To what extent is that Democrat faith in larger turnout uh, equaling a, a Democrat victory, uh, grounded in historical uh, uh, precedent, uh, to what extent is it a more modern development? I think that the, the Democrats believe that when people get the chance to vote, they will vote for Democrat. Um, and when there is voter suppression, that tends to uh, favour the Republicans, who they roundly accuse, accuse of trying to limit access to the polls. Um, 
as with all things, there's a degree of, of uh, truth to this, but also a lot of politics involved. Uh, I think the Democratic Party uh, are generally more in favor of, uh, of, of a more straightforward uh, access to the polls, um, perhaps more akin with what we have in the United Kingdom, uh, whereas the Republican Party will, uh, will stand up and say, well, I think, uh, you know, that uh, electoral uh, security is important and people shouldn't be afraid to provide identification if they want to vote, etc., etc. Um, there is a, a differing approach, I think, generally to how access to the polls should be treated. Uh, and again, you see that variance uh, across the country. Um, the idea, however, that greater turnout will benefit the Democrats uh, is not necessarily always uh, beholden with the truth. And again, the imagery which I always have in mind when uh, this subject comes up is 2004, when uh, following four years of George W. Bush, mm. uh, after the 2000 election, which of course uh, uh, the popular vote went to Al Gore, uh, myself and many people figured, well, the Democrats are going to be hopping mad about this. Of course, they're going to be energized and go out to vote. Uh, and indeed, on election morning, there were photographs, news camera co coverage of long lines outside polling booths, and uh, many people believed incorrectly obviously that this represented a huge democratic turnout that would evict George W. Bush from the White House and result in a, a Kerry presidency and of course the exact opposite had happened. Um, voter turnout had been the name of the game in 2004 and Karl Rove had got that spot on quite frankly. So as with all these things what actually matters is turnout and how it is that each state's apparatus uh, operated by the two parties, is able to drive people to the polls. What astonishes me, quite frankly, uh, this late in the game, is that you're still seeing reports about uh, an attempt to drive, um, if not quite undecided voters, then um, ambivalent Democrats to the polls. Hmm. Uh, you're not hearing this, it must be said, about Republicans. No one's talking about the need to try to drive ambivalent Republicans hmm. to the polls. Hmm. That there doesn't appear to be an ambivalent Republican in the country, if you will. Uh, but there are clearly, apparently, um, plenty of ambivalent uh, Democrats who may or may not bother voting. Uh, and it is astonishing, quite frankly, um, when you consider what happened four years ago, uh, when mm. it is mm. very, very clear that it is exactly that kind of individual uh, who didn't bother to vote for Hillary Clinton, uh, for a variety of reasons that resulted in Donald Trump's presidency. And if you extrapolate from that, uh, that perhaps that exact kind of individual um, has suffered under Donald Trump, been protesting under Donald Trump, um, and would have most to gain from uh, Donald Trump leaving the White House, the idea that these individuals are still having to be chased, harassed, uh, lobbied uh, in an attempt to get them to vote uh, is quite a remarkable situation, I think. Mm. Thinking of the old uh, uh, Reagan line that became a, a poll classic of, uh, you know, are you better off now than you were four years ago? How might we, how might we analyze those individuals, those, those uh, uh, potential Democrat voters who the Democrat Party feel need to be chased in this hour of history? Well, it's very, very, um, it's very difficult in an attempt to uh, take that classic Reagan line, apply it to um, what might be feared to be ambivalent Democrats, 
and then understand why it is that they're not bothering to engage in a democratic process. Uh, clearly, and, and we've, I've revisited this line many times over the past couple of weeks, uh, and maybe even years in our conversations, mm. you know, the, the Republican vote did not leap four years ago. The Democratic vote fell by some five million. And again, when you consider that Hillary lost those um, three key states by 70,000 votes, um, you know, it, it's very clear that decisions are made by people who show up. And the idea that these people um, are having to be convinced to bother to get out to vote is a remarkable situation. And if I may, you know, this, this cuts to the very heart of Republican thinking, which is, you know, voting is there, it's a right. If you can't be bothered to vote and you don't vote, well, fair enough, quite frankly, you know, we'll take the votes we can get. You know, the idea that there are people out there who have full access to the, to the, to the electoral process um, and don't bother voting, which of course, in the last election was the majority of people um, mm, when you mm. consider that the electoral turnout was some was was under 55 56 percent uh, that means that the majority of people who had access to the polls didn't bother going to vote um, that's a remarkable statement and an indictment of the American political system quite frankly mm, however mm. you know Republicans would say well these people have every opportunity to vote they are expressing their right not to vote let them get on with it uh, the Democratic Party is taking the opposite vote approach, which is, no, 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 we must chase these people down, we must get them out to the polls and get them to participate. Um, so very, very clearly there is a different political perspective with regard to turnout. Um, but again, when you consider uh, the, the, the seeming um, extrapolation between the people who aren't voting uh, and potential uh, financial and economic hardship. Um, there's the suggestion that those who are suffering most under Donald Trump are not chomping at the bit to try to vote uh, and indeed may right. even sit the election out. Mm -hmm. uh, really speaks, I think, to the sense of disillusionment uh, which has been crippling American politics uh, for decades, it must be said. This is not a new mm -hmm. um, uh, situation. Um, you know, turnout hasn't topped 60% uh, in decades, quite frankly. So something clearly has to change within the American political system uh, to try to uh, engender a greater sense of participation amongst its citizenry. Um, but at this point, you really have got to ask, you know, and if, if an election like this, with a candidate as divisive as Donald Trump, uh, is not driving people to the polls, uh, and people are still sitting around thinking, well, it doesn't bother me, it's not it's important, important to me, mm. then quite frankly, you know, that is exactly why the Republic Republicans think, well, if people like that can't be bothered to vote, then they won't vote, and we're not going to bother chasing it or making life any easier for them to vote. Mm. One of the arguments uh, that I've heard for that complacency is this notion that Hillary won the popular vote four years ago, and yet it didn't matter. So there's no point in voting until the Electoral College has been uh, 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 re re uh, rebuilt, as it were, in a, in a favorable image. Your thoughts on that, please. So it's funny, isn't it? Um, losers always complain about the rules and complain, well, you know, if uh, you know, we only lost because the rules were, were as they were. And if we change the rules, then we would win. 
Um, you see this with regards to complaining about the Electoral College. Um, you see it also with regards to the entire electoral process here. Um, don't forget the, the, the presidential election is basically not dissimilar to what we have in the United Kingdom, which is a winner-takes-all approach. Um, we don't have, there is no proportional representation in the United States uh, any more than there is uh, within the United Kingdom. Well, just like in the United Kingdom where the smaller parties who can't win under this situation want to change the rules, and I'm looking at you Liberal Democrats out there, um, so here in the United States, smaller parties who have absolutely no chance of getting a, a foot in the door uh, at a national level also want to change that. And we're seeing, for example, here in Massachusetts, uh, advertising trying to switch to a, uh, a preferred voting process where instead of just ticking one box, uh, you would put them in rank preference order. So, you know, tick one for Joe Biden, two for Donald Trump, mm. and three, quite mm. frankly, for anybody else. Mm. That isn't going to take hold anywhere, quite frankly. Um, the idea that you would need to suddenly change the rules of the game uh, is not something which is, a, which is choose, chosen by people who have a, a track record of victory. Um, I was thinking about this uh, uh, over the last couple of weeks because this idea of uh, people complaining about the electoral college is, is not new. And of course, it's been going on and rumblings about it um, hark back uh, many, many decades. Of course, when uh, Al Gore won the popular vote and lost the presidency in 2000, there were similarly uh, questions asked at that time period. Um, let me put it with a, within a, a sporting metaphor. To me, it's a little bit like playing uh, soccer in the United Kingdom, uh, scoring a goal from an offside position having the goal disallowed and then complaining about the offside rule. Well, you know, you know going into the game that the offside rule uh, is there. Admittedly, mm. it seems to keep changing from when I was playing as a kid, but um, <laughs> you know what the rule is. Uh, and if you uh, try to basically say, well, the rules uh, are, uh, are screwed to prevent me from scoring and my goal should have uh, stood, well, you knew, the game, you knew the rules going into the game you play by the rules of the game as they start and you can't expect to change the rules halfway through the process. Um, it's a little bit like that with the Electoral College. A lot of people misunderstand it. I know uh, a few weeks ago, uh, over the course of some two weeks, uh, we tried to explore it, the origins of it, the rationale for it. Um, but let me reiterate again, two points if I can. A, the Electoral College is put in place to make sure that any candidate for the president has to campaign nationally and not simply in a narrow region of the country where they could depend upon their own regional uh, uh, favorability mm. um, to try to make sure that a candidate is a national candidate, not a regional candidate. Um, secondly, this idea that, oh, well, you know, it should be uh, population should matter most more than electoral college. Well, of course, that's missing the facts, and, and I think born out of ignorance, that the Electoral College reflects population uh, exactly. Each state has a different number of uh, electors to the Electoral College, which is equated to how many members of the uh, Senate they have and how many members of the House of Representatives they have. And of course, each state has a number of uh, representatives in the House of Representatives predicated on what? how many people live in the state. Mm -hmm. So each state has uh, a, a differing level of, um, of, uh, of 
oomph, if you will, in the Electoral College, depending on how many people live in that state. That's why California is so very important, because it has a 55 Electoral College votes. That's because it has two senators and 53 members of the House of Representatives, because it is the uh, state with the largest population. Uh, whereas Rhode Island, for example, has three electors to the Electoral College because it, like California, has two senators, but it only has one member of the House of Representatives because it has such a tiny uh, population. So the idea that population and the people don't have a say in the Electoral College is missing the exact dynamic about why the Electoral College vote per state is what it is. Uh, I think too few people understand that, quite frankly. Um, very clearly, if America was a true democracy, you would have the popular vote um, being, you know, carrying the day every, every day, quite frankly. But uh, very clearly, uh, the Electoral College suggests that America is not a democracy in the truest form of the word. And whether you agree with that, whether you think it is uh, an anachronistic uh, concept, which many people do, I, I recognize that, um, but I, I worry that too few people truly understand why that process is in place. And whilst there are clearly flaws with a process which can allow the popular uh, will of the people uh, to be uh, rejected in favor of this uh, electoral college process, it was put in place and is in place um, very much to ensure that as I said, any candidate for the president um, is a national candidate. And um, frankly, it must be said, I think, if you look at the, the electoral college map that emerges after uh, in every presidential election, um, all too often, what you see is a sea of red mm -hmm. across the nation for the Republican candidate and a very uh, scant uh, showing, uh, at least around the country, uh, for the Democratic candidates uh, on, the, uh, on, the, on the left coast, uh, sorry, the west coast, uh, here on the east coast, uh, and uh, in key places like uh, New Orleans and, uh, and Illinois, for example, mm -hmm. um, signifying, I think, uh, that the Electoral College is actually doing what it's meant to do, which is to encourage a national candidate to win uh, and unfortunately, the problem the Democrats have is that they are uh, increasingly being uh, viewed, I think, by uh, this country as representing a, a, a coastal elite, mm -hmm. uh, coastal mi minorities. Uh, if you see where the Democratic Party picks up massive support, uh, it is in urban areas uh, and where they simply cannot penetrate uh, are those uh, rural areas. Uh, between the Appalachians and the Rockies, um, and then even within coastal states, as soon as you get out of the cities and into, into uh, rural areas, um, you're into deep red territory. Mm. Um, frankly, if it wasn't for the large conurbations in this country, the Democratic Party would be in all kinds of trouble. And um, uh, so the Electoral College isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Um, we've had this conversation before, the debate is not new, uh, and quite frankly, as long as, uh, you, know, you know, what's that old saying, turkeys don't vote for Christmas. You know, the people who win the elections are mm -hmm. not then going to change the rules which have ensured their exact victory. 
Um, that wouldn't happen in the United Kingdom. It wouldn't happen, frankly, in any um, uh, advanced um, political system. It sure as hell isn't going to happen here in the United States. <laughs> Thinking of the um, rules of the game there, uh, going back to the uh, the Bush-Kerry moment and the uh, Obama-Romney moment, to what extent are political analysts underestimating the significance of uh, the incumbent candidate in any given uh, election? You see, I recognize uh, where you've got that question from, which is nice. Um, <laughs> I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the power of the incumbency is something which analysts, frankly, always underestimate. Um, if you are the incumbent president of the United States, you have a huge head start heading into any electoral process. You, you, you are the president of the United States. Mm. You don't need to try to um, introduce yourself to the American electorate. Uh, you don't need to try to emerge from a, a, a sea of, of seemingly uh, uh, regional candidates. Uh, I remember back in 1988, uh, there were some seven Democratic candidates, if I remember correctly, right. um, all of whom were known collectively as the Seven Dwarfs, uh, because they were, you know, dwarf-like uh, compared to, um, at that point, Vice President uh, George H.W. Bush. Mm, mm. And, you know, you know, you get to, just think about it, if you are the president, and I've seen people on Twitter this week complaining about this, um, noting this, and it does make you realize, frankly, how many people are suddenly, you know, claiming to be experts in American political life. And, and they clearly haven't got a clue, quite frankly, what they're talking about. And they've got no exposure to American political history. People complaining about, oh, it's terrible. Donald Trump is, uh, is campaigning uh, using Air Force One. It's like, well, it's the president's aircraft. You know, he's not going to suddenly go charter to fly around the country uh, during a campaign sequence. Uh, Frank, I'm not mistaken, of course, the fact that if the president was on an aeroplane, whatever the aeroplane it was, that immediately becomes Air Force mm -hmm. One because mm -hmm. that's the, the designate for any aircraft that the president is flying around on. So uh, the fact that he's got a fancy aircraft um, with the United States of America painted on the side um, in a livery that, was, uh, that dates back to the Kennedy administration um, is, is quite frankly a lovely backdrop. But it also, I think, um, gives you a sense that... Uh, that this individual, whoever it is, if you are the president and you're campaigning for re-election, um, yes, you have a track record to run on and to defend uh, if there are problems with that, but you've also got the trappings of office. You know, whichever president it is, let's take Trump out of this. You know, you do, you will land at a regional air, airport on Air Force One. You know, you will uh, get whisked to a, uh, a location on Marine One. You will have a motorcade uh, riding in the beast, you know, you will speak to any audience from behind what used to be known as the blue goose, uh, the, uh, the podium uh, with the, the seal of the president of the United States on it. You know, these are trappings of power uh, that your opponent simply cannot have and would love to have. Um, everybody wants to be campaigning um, from a position of power. It just happens this time it's Donald Trump. And I think that too few people recognize a simple fact, which is if you are the incumbent president of the United States and you are not challenged within your own party, you will almost certainly win re-election. And as I pointed out on Twitter over the course of the last couple of days, if Donald Trump is not re-elected, uh, he will be the first president of the modern era 
to go down to defeat, having not been uh, primaried by a candidate from within his own party. If you look back uh, at those candidates uh, seeking a second term in office um, who have been defeated, uh, they have universally faced an internal challenge from within their own party, which has weakened them, allowing their opponent, be they Democrat or Republican, uh, to, uh, to steal a march upon them effectively and to secure victory in their own right. So, yes, the power of the incumbency is vital. Yes, I think it's been uh, uh, all too often overlooked and ignored uh, by, by pundits and analysts alike, quite frankly. And it is, I think, um, one of the key elements in this race, uh, which suggests that uh, anybody counting Donald Trump out at this point, he's probably making a mistake. Hmm. It's election eve and also the House and so forth. Um, in lieu of political predictions, because I know we, we have a strict, strict and tight rules here on the American Chronicle in that regard, uh, I'd like you to paint a picture for us, please, of the 69 days between the, uh, uh, the, the election this week and the inauguration of either uh, Trump or Biden. If Biden wins, what does the United States of America look like for those 69 days? And similarly, if Trump wins, same question. So the time period between the election in November and the inauguration in, in January has been referred to in the past as the twilight zone in American political life. Um, it is uh, during this interregnum uh, that any new administration has to start bringing together um, uh, its new cabinet, for example. Um, but very clearly, uh, we are entering into uh, some very strange times. All across America, uh, cities are being prepared uh, for the fallout from the election. We're seeing governors mobilize the National Guard. We are seeing city centers being boarded up uh, in anticipation of a violent reaction from either the left or the right, quite frankly, depending upon the result of this election. Uh, that speaks ill uh, to any uh, aspirations, I think, that, uh, that Tuesday is going to bring about a sense of healing in the United States. Mm. I know that in Europe, I, uh, that there is a sense that, well, if Donald Trump is just defeated, we can somehow go back to as things were before. But uh, quite frankly, the sense of, um, of disconnect and disillusionment uh, between the two camps uh, is such that uh, whatever happens on Tuesday, you're going to see... Uh, I think, a violent reaction of one sort or another. Uh, quite clearly, if Donald Trump's uh, campaign is victorious and Donald Trump is returned for a second term in office, um, you're going to see, uh, I think, uh, a sense of profound disappointment, to put it politely, uh, from uh, the left, uh, from minority groups, uh, and, uh, and that will, I think, uh, uh, result in the kind of um, reactions that we saw in city centers across the United States, including here in, uh, in Massachusetts at the beginning of the summer, uh, for example. And uh, likewise, if Donald Trump uh, is defeated, uh, the great concern then is that Donald Trump will not accept that result and will attempt to whip his supporters up into a frenzy, um, taking direct action potentially against uh, the, the vote count uh, around the country. The challenge here, of course, is that Donald Trump has a reputation for playing fast and loose uh, with uh, electoral norms. 
four years ago, he refused to just categorically say that he would accept the outcome of this election. He has similarly uh, dallied with uh, that kind of response this time round. He has announced that he's going to keep holding rallies after election day, uh, which is telling mm. whether he wins or loses. Uh, of course, if he wins, I guess there'll be victory rallies. Uh, but if he loses and he's still holding rallies, then the great concern there, obviously, is that he will uh, use those rallies in an attempt to whip up uh, public uh, uh, distrust in the electoral process. He has said uh, in the last day or two uh, that he cannot lose uh, if the election is fair and that if he does lose, it will be because of vote rigging. Now, that is a very dangerous position uh, to take for any elected official, mm. um, not least of which if that is the President of the United States. We have not been in this situation before. One of the, uh, the beauties of American democracy uh, is this idea of the peaceful transference of power. We have not in American political history had uh, an incumbent uh, challenging the, uh, the, the outcome of an election to a point where he is suggesting that he won't leave office if there is, uh, if he's defeated and suggesting that he can only lose uh, if it's a, a fraudulent election. Now, what do we do? We are into an, an untamed, uh, uncharted territory, effectively, if indeed uh, we end up in that predicament. And if that is indeed the case, that it is going to be a very, very uh, troubling time uh, between Election Day and Inauguration Day, uh, as the world waits to see what it is that Donald Trump and his supporters uh, decides to do um, in that uh, situation whereby Trump loses the election, uh, but somehow questions uh, the validity of the vote. Um, we've had a chaotic candidacy from Donald Trump in 2016. Many people suggest we've had a chaos president for the last four years. Could we end up with an all too chaotic uh, interregnum uh, in the coming uh, 11 weeks or so? That's it for tonight's American Chronicle, a 12th peer production, 2020, with music by Chris Warner. By way of a plug for our election night adventures, I can inform you here that Dr. James D. Boys and myself will be live on Twitter, video tweeting in a Q&A format the election for the duration of the evening, specifically UK time, 2 a.m. to 7 a.m. and Eastern Standard Time, 9 p.m. to 2 a.m., the uh, Goldilocks zone, if you will, of all that's fit to print. Until the early hours then, I'm off to get some sleep. Good luck, and ever onward to you all.